Father God, thank you so very much for this incredible opportunity and this event where we are able to focus on you in a multitude of ways. We're able to use our minds by learning. We are able to enjoy your beautiful nature and get our bodies moving around more than we're probably used to. We're able to sing to you, raise our voices, fellowship one with another. It's just such a multi-layered event, so thank you so much. Please bless Pepperdine staff, the students that are working, all the people who organize, a lot of the people who are willing to swallow their nerves and teach and lead and sing and just put themselves out there. We've all been so much blessed by that. Please open our ears and our hearts and our minds that we can hear a lesson today, including me, because I've learned this as much as anybody else. Please let me speak truth that glorifies you and your hearts willing to listen and verify. I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're facing the wrong way. Oh, come on in. See. I prayed too soon. Oh, <laughs> some people showed up. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome. So, please forgive me if I start and stop in speed. I am used to teaching in a different format than this, and so my nerves are just a little bit <laughs> present today. Um, but thank you for coming to Love, Truth, and Forever. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to um, present something that we should know in a way that'll be a little bit new. My name is Jeanette Duval, and I am the associate pastor at Fearless Faith Fellowship. My husband and I are planning this church in El Paso, Texas. Um, we started in 2022, and getting everything moving along, and it's just us, so we've been moving at an embryonic speed, and we've just started having semi-regular um, worship services in the park. We feed the homeless, and we have plans of reaching out to uh, the elderly and uh, hopefully the college students, because UTEP is really big. There's a lot of opportunity there, so if you pray for us, that'd be awesome. Um, we decided to do that because we saw a need for a church that was compassionate and bold. I think sometimes churches are too much on one side and not enough on the other. We'll speak truth boldly but we'll disregard hearts and feelings. And sometimes we're so soft in the hearts and the feelings that we kind of leave truth off to the side for a little while so we don't hurt anybody. And we're hoping to walk the line between those two extremes. Um, we're hoping to proclaim Christ to a world that doesn't remember why we need him. And that the idea of sin is outdated and no longer necessary. And without understanding sin and truth of it, it makes what Jesus did for us worthless and valueless and therefore easy to disregard. And so that's what we're hoping to uh, address. I used to live here in Southern California most of my life. We escaped in 2020 and moved to uh, Texas in El Paso. <laughs> and so that's me in a nutshell. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, the harbor theme this year is that God loves forever. And the description in our brochure stated, could anything be more important for the church now as it seeks to recapture its true identity in a changing world than to know that we are beloved by God? And it really struck a chord in me because in that little synopsis, 
to me that it, it made some really bold claims kind of hidden in those words. And that was the inspiration uh, for the class, actually, because it claims certain things about love, truth, and forever, which is the title, so you can kind of see how I wound up there. Number one, it claims that the church is seeking to recapture its true identity. So we have this true identity, or at least we had it, and we're in the process of recapturing it. So if we accept the statement, then that means we are seeking something that we used to have and that is true. The statement contrasts the changing world with this true identity. So it is implying that our true identity is unchanging. And claim number three is the biggest one that God loves forever. If we accept these claims, then we must also accept, you'll have to pardon me, my bifocal line is in the wrong place on my glasses, so I can't figure out where my head's supposed to be. If we accept these claims, then we must accept that both God and love are forever. And we see examples of this in scripture, but the one that was used um, in this case, our proof text, if you will, is Psalm 136, which is repeating of his love being forever. His love endures forever. And that's supposed to be an eternity symbol. If you don't tip your head, you won't recognize it as an eight. Mm -hmm. um, so if we accept this, then we must also accept that that statement is true. But we're going to talk more about truth um, later on because if we accept this as true, then we have to also accept the very existence of truth. So we're going to first take a look at the love that is spoken of so freely in Psalm 136. This word right here, hesed, that's the love that is repeated over and over again. When it says his love endures forever, his hesed is forever. It endures. And we're, over and over we're told this, it's used 26 times in the Psalm 1 for every single verse. And the interesting thing about this word is that it doesn't actually have an equivalent in either English or Greek. So when you get to this particular word in your scriptures, the different translations, even ones that agree on a lot of other places, will often have a different word for this one. And we're going to see some of those in just a minute. But the root of this word means to bow one's head towards another. And that word is used about 250 times throughout the Old Testament, and more than half of them are in the Psalms. I forgot to push my button. And there's the root. Different words, such as love, 
goodness, kindness, mercy, and devotion, and favor have been used throughout scripture when the word hesed shows up. And if you speak um, Hebrew, please forgive me of my murdering of that word because it's got a and I can't do that sound in the front. Um, the interesting thing though is that no matter what word they pick, not one of them truly captures the amazing depth and breadth that is held in that one little word. So a lot of translators and biblical scholars will sometimes invent a compound word um, in order to try to get it across. And some of them you can recognize from hymns especially, but we see words like loyal love, steadfast love, faithful love, loving kindness, unfailing love. And most scholars will agree that loving kindness is actually, if we had to just pick one, that that particular one is about as close as you're going to get um, to representing hesed the best. And we might ask ourselves, why is this important? And I would say, how well that we understand and appreciate the message that's held in that one word impacts everyone. Whether you're a believer, a non-believer, a skeptic, or a seeker, because God himself uses hesed to describe himself when he's talking to Moses as he passes by in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, that's hesed, and truth, who keeps loving kindness, which is hesed again, for thousands. So it was so important, God repeated himself in reference to himself. And anyone who studied the Bible for a while, we realize that the more times a phrase or a word is repeated, the more weighty that word or phrase is to us, the reader. God intends for us to do something um, with it. And it says, they say that Hesed describes the feelings of love and kindness, which is why they uh, prefer that one particular compound word. And there's a gentleman by the name of John Oswald. He's an 82-year-old um, professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he specializes in teaching theology, the Old Testament, and ancient Semitic languages, including Hebrew. And he who is an expert in this particular language, sums up Hesed as being a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. And since God uses that about himself twice, that's kind of cool, especially when you go back and think about Psalm 136, and he uses it 26 times in reflection of who he is. But Hesed isn't just a feeling, and that's why it gets really difficult and, and crazy to try to figure out how we can apply this because hesed is also a verb. It's always a call to action. It's tied to an action and it's a link. It links us to salvation. 
It binds relationships, especially covenant relationships, between people and between people and God. So it's got, it's like a multifaceted shape whose name I can't remember right now. Um, but it's a proactive word. It's not a reactive word. So it's always moving towards action. And the interesting thing is, is that that moving toward is the enduring part of Hesed. When we read his love endures forever, you can't find, you know when you go into like the Blue Letter Bible or you open up Strong's and stuff like that and you're trying to figure out what every word was in the original language so you can really dig deep, there's no word for enduring. It is implied by the actual word hesed because hesed itself endures. So we are told that God has enduring hesed and then for how long, which the answer is forever. And when you consider how many times that word is in scripture, God really wants us to let it sink in. To get a more accurate understanding of this kind of love, we're actually going to take a look in the New Testament to probably one of the most well-known scriptures about love. Who can guess what that is? No, but good try. Huh? First Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. So we're going to look at what love is. We, we're, most of us are familiar with the scripture. I'm not going to actually read through it, but I'm going to kind of sum up. So love is patient and kind. And love is not jealous, arrogant, easily angered, provoked, And love does. So we know what it is. We know what it isn't. Now we're going to find out what it does. It rejoices with the truth. It's always protective. It's always trusting. It's always hoping. Always persevering. But love does not brag, act rudely, seek its own, keep track of wrongs, Rejoice in unrighteousness, fail, ever. Love is and does always and forever. It is, it is not, it does and it does not forever and ever ongoing. It never stops. So it's a verb and a noun, a thing that exists and a thing that moves the Greek word that was translated as love in this passage is, anybody know? Agape. Yes, it's agape. I forgot I pushed the button already. Sorry. <laughs> it was an easy test. Um, now, agape is remarkably like hesed, but there are major differences. And they're both used in reference to God. And they do both mean love. In Hebrew, hesed is a kind of love that is both promised and owed. It's almost a contractual kind of love.
it's framed by the covenant agreement, which is why it's used in reference to Israel's relationship to God and God's relationship with Israel, because they had a covenant relationship. It's also used in reference to husbands and wives. They are to be said to each other because they are in a covenant arrangement, agreement, and that love is supposed to in, encapsulate and permeate that relationship. So it has boundaries and purpose that's a little bit different than agape. Agape, on the other hand, is an all-encompassing love that is as broad in application as hesed is narrow in application. Agape is the word for love that is used when we are told that God is love. In 1 John, it says, and I want you guys to count, Dear friends, let us love, agape, one another, for love, agape, comes from God. Everyone who loves, agape, has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, agape, does not know God because God is love, agape. This is how God showed his love, agape, among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, agape. Not that we loved, agape, God, but that he loved, agape, us, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Interestingly enough, the phrase on the top, dear friends, it's sometimes translated as beloved. It's just another form of the word agape. It's just that instead of the love itself, it's referencing someone who is on the receiving end of agape. So nine, did I count right? Nine times agape is used in this scripture. And of course, we know that when something is repeated, it's of great importance. And we see that everyone who loves in this manner knows God. And if we don't love in this manner, the very fact that we don't is evidence that we don't know God. That's pretty powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Romans 5.8 shows us that agape is not restricted. Hesed is restricted in its application. It's a connective Thing. There has to be some sort of an acknowledgement or agreement on either end of it. But agape is not restricted to those who are connected by relationship. It says, but God demonstrates his own love, which of course would be agape, towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. So we know God loves those who love him, and this proves that God loves those who didn't or don't or won't love him. Agape is a divine love that freely, that is freely, I should say, offered to all. Whereas hesed is relational love toward which we're supposed to strive. Agape is always positive. You can never find a bad agape 
in Scripture, other than not having it. But the, it, it itself is always a good thing. But the interesting thing about hesed is that twice it's negative, and there's about three other times where it's neither positive nor negative. It's just used to describe a situation. But I wanted to talk about the two negative ones because if this word is how God referred to himself in his own word, then understanding the positive and the negative can have a huge impact on our relationship with him. In Proverbs 14.34, it says, Righteousness exalts or lifts up. The or part, by the way, is just another translation of the word exalts. It's kind of like um, the amplified version my way. <laughs> Um, so you'll find scriptures that will say exalts a nation or lifts up a nation, but sin disgraces, or some will say condemns, or brings judgment to any people. A closer look at the second half of this particular proverb is kind of interesting if you dig into the original words, because the word but in this particular sentence is the word hesed. And I had to do some digging because I couldn't quite figure out how they got love to become but. And then I realized that the word on the other side, whichever one you pick, is also hesed. So righteousness lifts up a nation, but hesed, sin hesed, to any people. And I found out that when hesed is in front of and behind a word, it's creating the relational framework that is reflective of the way the word is applied when it's positive, right? We have to have the giver of hesed and the receiver of hesed, and hopefully it goes in both directions, but it's a very narrow connection. Each person can have that narrow connection, but it isn't a far-reaching pouring out. It's a connective individually. When we talk about our personal relationship with God, that's our hesed connection with God. So when he puts the word in front of and behind, what it's doing is creating a relationship with the word in the middle. So we're being told that righteousness or right thinking and actions can exalt you or lift up a nation. But when you have a relationship with sin, the relationship itself results in con condemnation because the sin is the basis of the relationship that's being spoken of, even though the word is hesed. And to me, that's wow, because we hear a lot about unconditional love of God. And yes, God's love was unconditional, in as much as that while we were still sinners, he offered up his son. But God's relationship love with us is conditioned upon a lot of things. Our acknowledgement of him, our acceptance of who he is in our life, the realization that we're sinners. There's a lot of things in our relationship with God. Otherwise, if he didn't care about those aspects of us that he wishes to change, then what Christ did becomes meaningless because he would have paid a pearl of great price for something that meant nothing. And that doesn't sound like God. So while righteousness is good and brings a nation or a people closer to God, sin creates the relationship that binds or ties a people to sin. And it's any people. The righteousness exalts or lifts up a nation, a group. But sin disgraces, condemns, or brings judgment to any people. You don't have to do it. It's a singular possibility. 
And that action, that relationship is what causes us to be worthy of judgment. The other example that where it's negative is in Leviticus, and it's kind of an incestuous, sexual, if a brother looks at a sister a certain way or a sister looks at a brother a certain way. So I didn't really want to dig into that one too much, but it reflects what this is talking about there as well. So love. All of this together tells us that love is powerful. It exists. It is. It's identifiable. It's everlasting. I went out of order. I'm sorry. It has consequences. And it is truth. And the fact that it exists means it is in and of itself truth. And we're gonna, that's our next thing we're going to get into is truth. Because that takes us to the second claim of the theme. Which is truth. And that's the Arizona Christian University Firestorm Phoenix. And I chose it because I'm going to be sharing some information um, in just a moment. And I went too far, so i got to go back one. There we go. The Cultural Resource, excuse me, Research Center at Arizona Christian University, which I find very confusing because I hear people talk about ACU all the time, and I thought it was in Texas. So they released a study in 2020, and according to the findings from Dr. Barna, he's the director of the research project, belief and acknowledgement in absolute moral truth that happens to be rooted in God's word is rapidly eroding among all American adults. Shocking, we never would have guessed, I know. <laughs> but what did kind of shock me is that it didn't matter whether the adults being surveyed were churched or unchurched. This doubt and disbelief could be found within every political segment inside of every single age group, even among people, and I don't quite understand how, that, how they could get their mind around this, people who identify God as the source of truth, there is a substantial rejection of any absolute standard or truth. And I don't understand how you could acknowledge that and yet also um, come to that conclusion. Most stunning is that the research shows a rejection of God's truth and any absolute moral standards by American Christians. Those seen as most likely to hold traditional standards of morality, evangelicals, who for this particular study were defined as people believing the Bible to be true, reliable, to be the true, reliable word of God, are just as likely to reject absolute moral truth by a percentage of 46% as to accept its existence beaten out by 2% at 48%. So half of the people claiming to be Bible-believing, God-affirming Christians fail to believe in the existence of um, absolute truth. They de they, um, there's a minority of born-again Christians, 43%, who still embrace absolute truth, but the study found that the pull of secularism 
is very strong in the younger ages, especially those under the age of 30. They are much less likely to select God as the basis of truth. Only 31% of people under 30 are even willing to say God's the source of truth as opposed to the 45%, which isn't all that great, it's only a 15% difference of adults over. They are much more likely to say that moral standards are decided by the individual. That's 60%. So then the survey asked where if, if you're defining truth differently, where are you finding the definition of truth? Where are you choosing your truth from? And it was found that although the most common notion is still that God is the basis of truth, only four out of ten people claiming the title of Christian was able to make that statement. Another four out of 10 believe that either inner certainty at 16%, scientific proof at 15%, tradition at 5%, or this one I thought was interesting, public consensus at 4%, because mob rule, always a good thing. <laughs> the remaining two out of every 10 adults said that either there is no such thing as truth, 5%, or they simply don't know any basis of truth, which was 13%. So I have a question. You can raise your hand if you want to answer, yell it out, or just think about it. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I want to welcome interaction if it is um, desired. But how many of us here today believe in the idea or the concept of absolute truth. Cool. You guys are in the top tiny percent. So the next question then, is truth the same for everybody, everywhere, all the time? There's some interesting answers coming out. I heard some yeses, I saw some head shaking, and I saw some yes, nodding, and no. So that one's going to come into play in just a moment. The next question is, can your truth be different than my truth? Yes. Yeah. Didn't know you were getting a pop quiz, did you? <laughs> is all truth relative or subjective? if that's a better word, depending upon circumstance. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of truth impacts every single aspect of our lives. I'm going to say that again. Our understanding of truth impacts every single aspect of our life. Recent polls show that over half of our children and teenagers who attend church and identify themselves as Christians will agree with the statement that your truth may be different than my truth. And this concept of truth is fluid, not fixed. 
and a fluid versus fixed understanding of truth has eternal consequences as well as immediate ones. The idea that we are all going toward the same place, the same thing, the same God, but we all have different roots or paths or understandings is false. It's heresy. But it's one that is accepted, proclaimed, and worn as a badge of protection by a growing majority of people of all ages. At best, this idea turns the idea of evangelism, something we are commanded by God to do, share the gospel, convert people to Christianity, make disciples. It's something that we're told to do. We're instructed how to do it. It's an expectation from Christ himself. But if your truth is different than my truth, if your path is different than my path and our destination is the same, then that at best becomes meaningless. Because who am I as a human to tell you as another human that your path is any worse than my path? If there is more than one, it would be like going to a restaurant and telling you that your chicken dinner was nowhere near as good as my fish dinner and expecting you to accept that proclamation as fact. At worst, and this is being seen more and more, it's perceived as an offensive attack against personal or cultural beliefs to the point where people sharing the gospel, even in an open, public piece of property where they're not yelling or screaming, I'm not talking about the Bible thumpers who want to chase you down and knock you over the head and push you in the pool. I'm talking about the people who are just standing out in public and reading scripture. That's it. Open for someone to come up. And they're being told that the very fact that they're reading that scripture in public is a verbal attack, a physical attack against people of other faiths. Mm. And there have been times when law enforcement, especially uh, private security enforcement, has been called in to remove people from that horrible, violent attack of ideologies. I'm sure most of us have heard this scripture. Matthew chapter 7 tells us, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to, to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And this little bump starts to get people upset, because now the possibility exists that they're on the wrong path because it's acknowledging the fact that there is, in fact, a right path. Again, we're told later on in verse 21 and 20 through 23 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will, only the one, excuse me, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we do good in your name? I got a plaque that said it. We performed miracles. And he says, I never knew you. Away from me. Not you mistaken people. 
Now you who chose the wrong path, away from me, you evil doers. That's, that's attaching a very heavy burden on not picking the right path because it isn't a smorgasbord of choices. We need to truly examine our understanding of and application of the very concept of truth in our life. In John 14, 6, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not a way, a truth, or a life. In Acts 4, 12, we're told that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. So there's a wrong path and a right path. And salvation can only be found through Jesus Christ. Our paths are getting narrower. We need to examine ourselves and sit down with the young people in our families and in our churches and ask them those questions. Get them involved in a discussion. We don't have to tell them what to think, but we need to get them thinking because they're being programmed to accept without conscious thought. And the problem with that is, is it doesn't matter whether the thought was conscious or not, we're going to be held accountable for it. Those are very expensive thoughts because we need to know just what truth is and what it is not. Truth is simply is at its most basic level. Truth simply is. It exists outside of us. It is not affected by our feelings about it, our opinions, our preferences, or our ideologies. It simply is. According to Wikipedia, you know, the bastion of truth on the internet where everything has to be true because everyone can edit it, I looked up absolute truth. And according to them, which it kind of shocked me because God makes sure that the truth is out there for people who seek it, even from a source that is usually questionable because Wikipedia says absolute truth is something that is true at all times and in all places for all people. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. Now, something can be true for you and it's different when I say the same thing as something different is true for me. There is a difference between something being true and being a truth. And that's a distinction that involves discernment, which is sadly lacking in more and more people these days. It's something that is always true no matter the circumstances. It is a fact that cannot be changed all the time, all places, exists outside of us, it's discovered, you can't invent it. It is transcultural. It is unchanging. It is not affected by our beliefs. It is not affected by our attitude. It is absolute. It is knowable. It is fact. And every single one of those statements exhibits an attribute of God, which is important because we were just reading how Jesus said he is the truth. And Jesus is God, and God is never changing. So if God is never changing and his attribute is identifying one of them anyway is truth, then by association and logic, truth itself cannot be changeable, or it is no longer truth, and it is no longer part of God's attribute. 
All truths are absolute. The idea that some truths are relative is a lie. That's a cylinder. And if you stand on this side of the cylinder and you look that way, it appears to be round. But if I stand on this side of the cylinder and I project my light this way, it appears to be square. This is true. This is also true. So people would say, well, what's true for me isn't true for you. Our truths are different. No, our perception, our point of view, our circumstances, our understanding, those are different and those can change. Those are part of who we are. We are ever changing. But truth is immutable. That's the truth. We may speak honestly and not speak truth. Our ability to comprehend reality is affected by our perspective. If you lay down on the floor and I put a box of tissue right in front of your face and I tell you to open your eyes and I have a brick wall taped to the side of that sucker, it looks like there's a, a big wall in front of you. You can't do anything about it. And the rest of us are laughing because we know you're laying on the ground looking at toilet tissue. Our perspective has a huge impact on what seems to be true to us, but that isn't the truth. The truth is it's a box of tissues, get up off the floor. Perceptions, preferences, opinions, circumstances, experience, feelings, beliefs, understanding, all may change. But truth does not. If your belief, I should say your belief, that you can fly is not going to keep the truth of gravity from causing you to hit the ground if you're dumb enough to jump off the roof. My perceptions and beliefs will affect how I react. If I'm out there swimming in the ocean and I see a triangular fin headed my way, my brain goes doo 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 and I'm wanting to get the heck out of there because there might be a shark coming after me. But if I knew for a fact that it was a dolphin coming to play, my reaction would be very different. So it isn't that those things aren't important. The ability to tell the difference between those things and what is truth is what's important. It is what is lacking the need for discernment. The root of all of these difficulties is a lack of discernment because without discernment we can't test truth and therefore we cannot or will not rely on it and you get a generation after a generation of people who say the Bible is true and yet not for me. That God is true for you but Buddha is true for me. Chocolate is good on your ice cream, but I want strawberries on mine. It, it, it cheapens all of that. Satan has permeated our culture with the idea that we can determine our own truth, that we deserve to be allowed and furthermore affirmed as whatever, whoever we wish we were or believe ourselves to be. But if Jesus is truth and he claims then, okay, but if Jesus is truth as he claims, then the idea that we can create truth, starting to see the heretical part of this, it's a furtherance of this lie, the very first most effective lie ever, that if you choose, you can become like God. It is the basest form of idolatry, and it seeps into every part of our culture, and it's dangerous. If we can create the reality 
that we want most identify with simply by declaring it so. And we know that his love endures forever. That's a truth. And if God is forever, which is a truth, and love is forever, then truth must also, by association, be forever. And living without God, because you lack any of those things, is also going to be forever. And I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. I'll hurry up. This is a, a, a very difficult passage, and I think it's one of the most misused passages in Scripture. Paul warns us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who do what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. As a very close friend of mine, some of you will recognize this quote. We have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? Mm -hmm. And this therefore is part of the reason why I think this is one of the most misused scriptures when people talk about sin. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, take note, because of this. That's another therefore, right? It's so important that God is repeating it to us. God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. And we take this out of context and we tell gay people around the world that that shows you that God hates you and you're going to hell. When what this is is a consequence of subverting the truth. Yes, it's a sin. But that isn't the point that Paul was making. We're all sinners. The Bible says if you've committed one, you've committed them all. So I'm just as guilty as these unnatural women and men and the shameful acts that they committed with one another. So that can't be the point of this list and the one that's coming. Furthermore, because we didn't already get it repeated twice, the third time we're told why, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. 
they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. And I love this part because it's, the, it's ignored. We, we focus so much on the sexual sin that we totally forget about the rest of this litany. Evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. We can hate these people. We never do any of that stuff. But wait, there's more. There's gossip. Uh-oh. <laughs> Slanderers. Okay, that's good. I don't lie about people. God-haters. I love God. Insolent. Oops. Arrogant. Only when it's deserved. And boastful. <laughs> only when I deserve to be arrogant. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Mm. Check that out. Inventing ways of being evil, every teenager in the world, is disobeying their parents. God says disobeying your parents is as equally a sign of depravity as public homosexual lust-filled sex. That is a shocker. And jaws drop in every teenage youth group in the world. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Because Hesed, the loving kindness, if you haven't got it, how can you love? How can you be kind? Although they knew or know God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Because apparently you're not good enough the first time. You've got to keep trying. Many people read this passage quickly and either ignore its warnings or focus so much on that extensive list of sin that they see it as nothing more than a checklist that God declares a sin and, and, and you check it off and that's your reservation you're going to hell. Your one-way ticket. You're worthless and you can't be saved, which is a lie because none of us are so depraved that Christ's blood can't redeem us. The, the, the falling short isn't in the price that was paid it's in the cashing of the check that we were given. Keeping a check of a million dollars, of a billion dollars, in your pocket and washing it with your jeans does you no good. Mm -hmm. Paul is warning us over and over and over again, because he did it three times, that it is exchanging truth for a lie, knowingly choosing to believe the lie. You know it's a lie. God is a merciful God. He gave us a conscience. The law convicts us. We know when we're doing wrong, but we justify it. We explain it away. We tell ourselves it's okay. We suffer from gender dysphoria and low self-esteem, and we commit suicides in rising numbers that haven't been seen in decades, but we are not wrong. Something else is the problem. You haven't been nice enough to me. It's all your fault. And that sounds like our society. So my thesis, my hope of this class that has gone over, and I apologize, is that we can hear the warning and decide to take very real steps to teach our youth, our young adults, our old people, every single person, what truth actually is. And like God, it is never changing and is eternal. And that's the 